Good morning. It's an honor to be with you in worship this morning and to bring you a message from the Word of God. So we're continuing in your series, Galatians, the freedom you're looking for. And our passage today will have an emphasis on promises. One thing I try to do my best is keep my promises. But sometimes that's a lot easier than it sounds. If I promise to my kids that I'll take them to the store tonight and let them pick out a toy, there's no guarantee that my car won't break down. There's no guarantee that one of us won't come down with a stomach virus or any number of things that may prevent this from happening. Even the most well-intentioned promises that we make aren't guaranteed to be fulfilled. Human promises are often broken. There are also times that people make promises that they don't intend to keep at all. People sometimes make promises that they were never planning to keep. Human promises are often empty. But even when we do plan to fulfill our promises and keep our promises, our promises are still limited. Our promises and commitments must be limited by time. I can't take my kids to the store every Sunday night for the rest of eternity. Human promises are always temporary. But fortunately for us, divine promises are nothing like human promises. The promises of God are eternal promises. That is, the promises of God are guaranteed for eternity. And so our passage today, we will see three things about the eternal promises of God. First is that the promises of God never change. Second, the promises of God give an eternal inheritance. And the third is that the promises of God are given to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout his letter to the Galatians, Paul refutes false teachers, and they've affected the church and the beliefs in the church in Galatia. And these agitators were teaching that faith in Jesus Christ is important, But you must also keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. That is, in order for Gentile or non-Jewish Christians to receive the promised blessings of God, to be accepted as God's people, they would need to be circumcised. They would need to keep the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Essentially, they would need to join the Israelites first and embrace the law as a way of life in order to be a part of God's people and to receive the promised blessings. And last week, Kyle discussed Paul's argument that the Galatians didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to become Israelites first to be members of God's family. That they were truly members of God's family because they had received the Spirit of God, not because they were keeping the law. And Paul used Abraham as an example. That it was through Abraham's faith that God counted him as righteous and not not by keeping the law. The true sons of Abraham were those who have faith in Jesus Christ, and they received the promised blessings to Abraham through their faith. God promised to bless the whole world through Abraham, and the blessings promised to Abraham come to people of all nations, both Jew and Gentile, through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, in verses 15 to 26, Paul builds off the argument he made in the beginning of chapter 3. Since the false teachers have muddled the relationship between the promises of God and the law, Paul continues to clarify this relationship. He starts in verse 15 by stating, 
to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul uses the example of a human testament or will to make his case. There's a story of a woman who died and left all of her property to a Christian university, or so it seemed. According to the precise terms of her will, all her worldly goods were bequeathed to a particular educational institution. The woman's children who lived on the other side of the country were surprised to discover that they had been left out of their mother's will. Actually, surprise was hardly the term. They were outraged that this college had taken advantage of their mother in this way, as they put it. So the children decided to contest the will in a court of law. They tried to claim that their mother's bequest only applied to personal effects, not to real estate. But in the end, they lost their case. And with it, any chance of gaining an inheritance. There was nothing they could do to change the terms of the will. As far as the law was concerned, the matter had been settled when their mother died. And this is the type of case that Paul's referring to in this text. If we cannot change the terms of a human will once that person has died and it is ratified or established, then how much more so should we expect God's covenant to stand? God made promises to Abraham in the covenant he made with him. He promised to bless all nations through him. And this is Paul's point in comparing the human covenant and God's covenant. His argument is from the lesser to the greater. If human covenants are not changed or amended once they are ratified, then God's covenant definitely does not change. God's promise to Abraham was not changed or amended by God giving the law through Moses. And so our first point we will take away from today is that the promises of God never change. They're eternal. That means they'll never be undone. So while we live in a world of human promises, broken promises, empty promises, temporary promises, the promises of God transcend human nature. They're divine promises. The promises of God are guaranteed to be fulfilled. They're guaranteed for eternity. And Paul elaborates on these promises that were made to Abraham in verse 16. He writes, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. The promises that were made to Abraham were also made to Christ. Jesus Christ is the true recipient of the blessings that are promised to Abraham. And Paul's logic is that the law doesn't change or cancel the term of the promises made to Abraham because they're all fulfilled in Christ. The agitators seem to have been making an argument that while faith in Christ is important, we shouldn't throw away 1,500 years of following the law. Faith in Christ was something new to them, and therefore we should honor the older tradition. But Paul here is saying that faith is older than the law. Abraham had faith in the promises of God before he was circumcised, way before God gave the law to Moses. God promised to Abraham, and Abraham had faith in those promises, and that's how he was counted as righteous. He was saved by his faith, which ultimately his faith was fulfilled in Christ. And Paul, or God repeats the promises several times to Abraham, and often he repeats them often to his offspring, the singular offspring 
Paul is saying? Paul's emphasizing that the noun is singular, not plural, and therefore referring to one offspring or descendant who is Jesus Christ. Now, if you read through the commentaries, there are many scholars who will say Paul's reading way too much into this singular noun. They'll say that Paul's hinging his argument on the fact that the noun offspring is singular, but this is what is known as a collective singular noun, meaning a singular noun that refers to more than one. Take the word family, for example. Family is the singular. Families is the plural. But the singular word family still refers to more than one person. That would be a collective singular noun. And so offspring can mean one single person, but even in the singular, it can refer to all of one's descendants. And so that's what these scholars are saying. This is a collective singular noun, Paul. How are you hinging your whole argument on this? But these scholars are missing what Paul is doing here. There's a big picture all throughout the Bible that Paul is, is pointing out. When we interpret a passage, we must not only consider the context around it, we must also consider the whole overarching storyline of the Bible. We must consider the whole of God's redemptive history. Paul isn't abusing the grammar to overstate his case. He's stating something that we see throughout the scriptures, that is God using a single individual to deliver his collective people. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, after the fall of Adam and Eve, speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Both collective singulars. But immediately after that, he says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Clearly now referring to the individual that will defeat Satan and deliver God's collective people. Then at the end of Genesis, God raises up the singular individual Joseph to save his collective people from starvation. In Exodus, God raises up the single individual Moses to deliver his collective people. In the temple system, God uses a single individual high priest to represent his collective people and to make a sacrifice in atonement of their sins. In the book of Joshua, God raises up the single individual Joshua to bring his people to the promised land. In the book of Judges, God repeatedly raises up a judge, a single individual, to deliver his collective people from their enemies. In the book of 1st, 2nd Samuel's Kings, Chronicles, God raises up a single individual king to rule his people and to lead them and to protect, protect them. And specifically, God promised, builds on the promises to Abraham when he promised to David an everlasting kingdom, a collective kingdom, and this will be given through a single king who will reign for eternity. All throughout the prophets, we see God's promise to bring salvation to people and to bring the nations to him through a single individual, the Messiah. And even in the New Testament, Jesus, speaking to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Paul isn't crazy. He isn't hinging his argument on a small piece of grammar. He's actually stating something much bigger that is seen all throughout the scriptures. The individual representative of God's people who delivers them. And he's saying that the promises made to Abraham are made to Christ, and to believe in those promises is to believe in Christ. 
The fulfillment of those promises is Jesus Christ. And therefore, to have faith in the promises of God is to have faith in him. He's saying we've entered into a new era in redemptive history. The object of faith has arrived in Jesus Christ. The law doesn't predate Christ because Christ is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. The promises to Abraham were also made to the singular offspring, Christ, who redeems the collective offspring of God's people. Paul then explains further in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. God's promise to Abraham and ultimately to Christ and to his people through Christ never change. The law, which came 430 years after Abraham, doesn't annul the covenant or make it void. And then in verse 18 he says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The inheritance Paul is referring to is the total blessings that are promised to Abraham. God promised Abraham a land, a place to dwell. He promised Abraham a people, a nation that would come from him. God promised Abraham a relationship with him. They're not just random people, but they are God's people. God promised that the nations will be brought into this, that the nations were going to be blessed through Abraham. And since the promises are eternal, this is an eternal inheritance. And that's the second point I want to emphasize today, that the eternal promises of God give an eternal inheritance. Not only do the promises of God never change, but they bring eternal blessings. God promised to Abraham and they are fulfilled in Christ, and this will come to a full consummation in an eternal place where God will be our God and we will be his people. He will eternally bless us and it will be people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. We will be blessed with eternal life in a resurrected body. Our enemies will be no more and we will enjoy the presence of God forever. When the New Testament speaks of inheritance, it's always of inheriting eternal things, inheriting eternal life, inheriting the kingdom, inheriting the imperishable. So what awaits all who have been saved by Jesus Christ through their faith in him is an eternal inheritance. It's imperishable. We will be in glory with God for eternity. Now imagine you found out that you're a relative of Bill Gates. And not only are you related to him, but he's going to leave you his entire fortune as an inheritance, which is about $131 billion. How much would this change how you live your life? You would immediately have a little more pep in your step, knowing that this inheritance was going to be yours in the future. How much more would it improve the quality of your mood? the quality of your work, the way you interact with people, how much you're willing to forgive people, and, and how would it provide comfort and hope in the storms and difficulty of life. But that inheritance would be temporary. It would provide instant gratification. It would take care of you in this world, but that would be it. It would do nothing for your problem of sin. It would do nothing for you in death. It would do nothing for you for the rest of eternity. Our inheritance in Christ is worth so much more. 
It's an eternal guarantee from God that brings us an eternal glory. It brings us into communion with God for eternity. We will be with him and be his people. He will be our God. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, pain, no more sin. And this is ours forever in Christ. This truth can bring us comfort even in our most difficult moments in this life. Life in this broken world is hard. It's tiring. And at times it can be grueling. But we can put our hope in an eternal inheritance. We can long for days when all of this will come to pass. And this should energize us for our mission. Focusing on the eternal blessings and inheritance that is ours in Christ can energize us and bring us to live our lives for the gospel, to live our lives for the kingdom of God, even when we're struggling with the brokenness of this world, even when we're struggling with our own brokenness. Focusing on the gospel of the eternal inheritance that is ours through the crucified Jesus frees us in the spirit to love God and love others. And so while we struggle, while we always will fail under the burdens of sin and brokenness, we're saved by grace of God through the sacrifice of his son. We're saved from the wrath of God and we're saved to an eternal inheritance. We're freed in the gift of the Holy Spirit to love God and others. Now, if you've been following Paul's argument, he says the law doesn't change or cancel the promises that were made to Abraham. The eternal inheritance only comes from the promise, not through the law. So a reasonable question to ask now is, why was the law given then? What was God's purpose in giving the law? And Paul anticipated this. He begins verse 19 with the rhetorical question, why then the law? But before we go into his answer, I just want to consider what does Paul mean when he says the law here? The law here represents the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the entire legal code. We see it in Exodus, pretty much the whole book of Leviticus, some in Numbers, most of Deuteronomy. And there's a total of 613 total commands if you count them all up. It's an extensive list of laws that's usually divided into three categories. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. The moral law gives us commands on how to behave in accordance with the nature of God. And we see this most prominently in the Ten Commandments. The moral law commands us to do what is morally good and not to do what is morally evil. It teaches us how to live in a way that is pleasing in the sight of God. The ceremonial laws are commands that taught the people of God how to worship God. They were putting in place the categories of clean and unclean. This was teaching us how to deal with our sin before a holy God. It was an extensively detailed system of being clean before God, how the priest must make a sacrifice and atonement for sin. It included all kinds of things, circumcision, the Sabbath, uh, festivals like the Passover and so on. The civil law were laws of governance that ruled the life of Israel as a nation. Israel as a state needed judicial laws to govern itself, and they were given in the law. They were national laws that pertained to civil order. So the question, why then the law, is saying, if the full law given to Moses doesn't cancel or change the promises, and if Abraham is saved by faith and those promises are fulfilled in Christ, 
and not saved by the law, then why did God give this fully complex law system to Israel at all? Why 1,500 years of this elaborate system of clean and unclean, temple rituals and sacrifice, festivals and all that is contained in the law? Why not go right from the promises of Abraham to fulfillment in Christ? Paul then answers, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made. First, we see here that God added the law after the promise because of sin. The law was added to clearly define sin as a violation of God's holy standard. It makes humanity aware of the extent of our sin. Paul wrote in Romans 7, I would not have known sin, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. There's a story of a man with a serious drug problem who had been gone for days. His hair was matted, his face was bruised, and he was covered in dirt, and then he came home and passed out in the kitchen. His wife found him lying there and took a picture of him in this state. And then one day, she placed the picture on the mantle next to a picture of him on their wedding day, where he was clean, well-dressed, and handsome. When he saw these two pictures, the reality of the situation struck him. This woke him up to how serious his situation was. It made him realize his need for help. The law functions in the same way. The purpose of the law is not to save people, but to show them their condition compared to a divine standard, to show them their need for a Savior. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. It reveals our need for God's promised grace and mercy. John Calvin once wrote that the law was given in order to make transgressions obvious and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. And it is only when we see our guilt that we see how much we need Jesus. The law is the law so that Christ can become our Savior. The law humbles us and crushes our pride. If you try to keep the law even for one day, you'll realize you can't do it. It drives us to Christ. It paves the way for God's grace. So the law reveals our sin to us, but the moral law does that. So why then all of these ceremonial and civil laws? Not only do we not know that we're sinners, we don't even know what it means to be sinful before a holy God. The complicated temple sacrificial system shows us how serious our state of sin is. It shows the problem of sin and it reveals our need for holiness. For 1,500 years, there was a repetition over and over again, showing the need for atonement, the need for an atoning sacrifice in the place of God's people, showing the seriousness of our state of sin before a holy God. Now, often people who are skeptical of Christianity will bring charges of hypocrisy to all Christians. They'll say that you follow some of the laws of God, but not all of them. And they'll pick some random law from Leviticus, uh, and they'll say, why don't you follow this one? I once had a teacher do this to me in the cafeteria. I, I was sitting down. He knew I was a Christian. I was eating sausage, pork. And he said, you, you say you're a Christian and you follow the commandments of God, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you're eating pork and the Bible says not to do that. So you're picking and choosing what you want to follow. Well, Paul is telling us here why Christians don't need to follow the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law anymore. Paul said that this was at it because of transgressions until 
the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. He is saying that this whole complex, elaborate temple sacrifice system, being ceremonially clean and unclean, festivals and so on, was temporary. It was never meant to last forever. It was to reveal our sin to us, to reveal what it means to be sinful, to reveal our need for holiness and atonement for sins, and to point us to the fulfillment of it all. Jesus Christ fulfills the promises to Abraham. He also fulfills the entire complex temple law system. He is the perfect high priest who offers the perfect sacrifice of himself. All that beforehand was just a point to the ultimate fulfillment of it all in Jesus Christ. So because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the ceremonial and civil laws are no longer needed. These systems pointed us to Christ and God's people no longer need to operate in them. The perfect sacrifice has been made. The new covenant has been established. The object of faith has come. And that's why Paul's so animately teaching against what these false teachers were saying. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to go back into the old system. Christ has fulfilled it. The civil and ceremonial law system was only temporary. The moral law continues. The moral law reveals God's character, and it's not abolished in the new covenant. The moral law is eternal. Paul continues, and he gives two other reasons why the law is inferior to the promise. Not only was the law temporary, but it was also put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. This is a bit confusing, but what Paul is saying is that the law given to Moses is inferior to the promises made to God, first because they're temporary and the promises were eternal. Now, because the law was given through a mediator, while the promises were given directly by God himself. The law was given to Moses, then Moses in turn gave it to the people. And what we're seeing here, and we actually see in a lot of the Jewish writings, is that angels gave the law to Moses and then Moses gave it. So there's actually twice removed from God himself. But in the covenant with Abraham, God made the covenant directly with Abraham, and he swore upon himself. If we look in Hebrews 6, uh, the, the author writes, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. But the law was given differently. It was given through angels and through Moses, then to the people. So the total law system has its limitations. It was only temporary. Right? The civil and ceremonial laws were temporary. It was limited in that it was given by a mediator. And then Paul writes in verses 21 and 22, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promises by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul tells us that the law is not contrary to the promises of God. Following the law as a means of salvation is contrary to salvation by, Christ, by faith in Christ alone. But the law itself complements the promises of God. So Paul then gives us this third reason we see here, that, that the law is inferior to the promise. The law can't save. The law can't give life. 
The law was never meant to save. Now, if you read the law, uh, it's presented as a pathway to the blessings of God. It says, if you follow this law, the whole of it, follow every detail of this extensive, elaborate system perfectly, then you will receive the blessings of God. But the problem is, we come to the law already in sin. We're born in sin. We inherited a sinful nature from Adam, and the law requires perfection. And this is what Paul means by the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. From the moment we're born, every descendant of Adam is born into iniquity. Therefore, when we approach the law, we're done before we even start. The law has no ability to bring a spiritually dead person to life. The law can't raise the dead. It can't save the sinner. So the law was only temporary. It was given by a mediator, and it can't save anyone. The law was given to imprison everything under sin. We don't recognize our sin. We don't think that we're sinners. The law exposes and reveals this to us, and it points us to the one who can save. The whole of the law, the full temple law system, points us to the true sacrifice, the true Passover lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The whole law points us to the the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's in the crucifixion of Jesus that we are freed from the law. It's in the crucifixion of Jesus that we're freed in the spirit to love God and love others. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly so that in faith we may receive the promised blessings of God. Now, Paul's not done. He gives another reason why the law was given. In verses 23 and 24, he writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So Paul here says that the law was given to be our guardian. The Greek word translated as guardian is paedagogos. It's a very specific type of guardian in the ancient world. This guardian was usually a slave, a trustworthy and faithful in character. Normally, the guardian would supervise a child from age six until puberty. The guardian would make sure the child went to school, guard the child, protect the child in and outside of the household. The guardian was also responsible for maintaining discipline and training the child. But once the child became of age or became an adult, the guardian was no longer needed. So how is the law a guardian in this sense? It gives us the categories of clean and unclean. It consistently tells us what it means to be holy. It reveals to us the implications of our sin and what it means to be sinners. This full temple sacrificial system shows us the problem of sin. It reveals our need for holiness. It convicts, disciplines, and trains God's people to prepare for the coming Savior. But now that Christ has come, we don't need the guardian anymore. We don't need the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law. They were pointing us to the need for a perfect high priest and a perfect sacrifice. And so we can understand the excitement of John the Baptist when he sees Jesus coming towards him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is him. The fullness of time has come. God is freeing his people from under the bondage of the law. Those who have faith in Christ are given the Holy Spirit. And now that spirit works in us. 
that we may love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, that we may love our neighbor as ourselves. And as Paul writes in verses 25 and 26, but now the faith, that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We are no longer under the full system of the law because the object of faith, Jesus, has come. And this is the third thing we can take away from our passage about the eternal promises of God. The promises of God are given to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that we're adopted as children of God, and therefore we receive the eternal inheritance. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that we're spiritual descendants of Abraham and that we receive the blessings promised to him. Jesus lived the sinless life that we could never live. Jesus fulfills the whole law, every aspect of it, so that we can be freed from the law. Jesus died the death that we deserve. He made the ultimate atonement of our sins so that we could receive his righteousness before God. Now we are no longer slaves to sin. Now we are no longer condemned under the law. We are now reconciled to God, justified in his sight. Because of the righteousness and holiness of Jesus is given to us. And because of this, we are free to live our lives for God. Jesus gives us the new life that we need. God gives us the Spirit so that we can grow in our love of Him and our love of our neighbors. And all this comes to those who have faith in Jesus. Now, there may be someone among us who have not come to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't come to believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you haven't come to believe that all of the promises that God has given are fulfilled in Jesus, if you haven't come to believe that Jesus is your only hope in life and in death, let today be the day. Now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. The gates of heaven are swung open for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in Jesus, the only one who can save you. Believe in Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today knowing that you are an amazing God. You love us beyond comparison, and it's only through your grace and mercy that we are reconciled to you. It's through your death and resurrection of your Son that we have new life. Help us continue to live resurrected lives in the Spirit, that we may be a people set apart that we may walk in the Spirit and live lives that are marked by our love for you and our love for our neighbor. Lord, we know that our hope in you is an eternal hope. Our inheritance is guaranteed a glorified, resurrected life with you for eternity. And we pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.